Let's go with our introduction to Ruth. I hope that um, those watching have taken the time to do the homework, to look at the text just a little bit, whether you have or not, not a huge deal because we're going to walk through these texts tonight. What I want you to try to get your mind around is the time, the place, and the setting of this little book. When we, when we say Ruth, we know the romance of Ruth. We know Boaz. We know the story of going into Moab. Uh, we know the kinsman redeemer, the Levite marriage stuff. The deeper you are into sort of Old Testament scholarship, maybe the more you understand why that was significant from a Jewish point of view. What is missed, because it's not blatant, and that's always what we're looking for, that which is not blatant that is often missed, is where Ruth lays on the timeline and why that is important, because sometimes there's more than meets the eye. Sometimes you do have a romance, but you have a romance that's being set against a dark backdrop, like a diamond against black velvet. The velvet is only there to show the shine on the diamond. And sometimes the story makes even more sense against that darkness. And I propose that that's a little bit about what's happening with Ruth. So let me set the stage. It's 455 BC. We're about four and a half centuries before the birth of Christ. We are 131 years after the fall of the temple at the hands of the Babylonians. The temple, Solomon's temple comes down um, and Israel is scattered, taken into captivity, and many of the Israelites are taken back into Babylon and sort of assimilated into Babylonian life while the Babylonians completely overrun the land. Uh, Israel is not in the land again, not until the 20th century whenever it's a reorganized nation that is completely unrelated to the nation of 455 BC that's knocked over by the Babylonians. About 131 years after the temple comes down, the Babylonians begin to allow some migrants to come back into Israel that are Jews. We're four generations removed now from the fall of the temple. And so you have a group of people coming back that don't really know their heritage. They don't remember the land they've lived in. They don't have the stories that their, that their fathers and their grandfathers lived through. Actually, their fathers didn't even live through them, and many of their grandfathers didn't live through them. So we're, we're talking several generations of people completely alienated from the life that they've known. And when they begin to come back, the journey back from Babylonian into a newer version of Jerusalem takes about 75 years. And that journey encompasses travel, not just geographically from Babylon back into Israel, but culturally back into the land that they've known. Um, the Persians have allowed a man named Zerubbabel to begin to rebuild that temple, which gets categorized in the Old Testament. A lot of times you'll you read this in Nehemiah, you'll read about this in Zechariah. Uh, you'll read about the hardships of trying to rebuild a temple in a land full of people who really don't want you there, who don't know you or your heritage or want anything to do with you, but they're allowed to come back in by decree of the Persian king. There's a couple of highlight characters at this time who have books that bear their name in the middle of the Old Testament. One is a man named Ezra. Ezra is a high-ranking priest in what will be the renewed temple in the middle of the 5th century BC. And Nehemiah, which Nehemiah is not in the priestly caste, but is a Jew serving in the court of the Persian king Artaxerxes and receives permission to come back and help rebuild the walls that will constitute a new city of Jerusalem and will constitute the walls that will be on the temple. So they come back with two real things in mind to do. Ezra and Nehemiah lead a charge back into Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city and the temple, but to rebuild the spiritual walls of the Torah. 
because they have generation of people that do not know their own rules or their own laws. They do not know the law of Moses. And so Ezra and Nehemiah pull out, and I'm, I'm being a bit hyperbolic here, but go with me. They pull out the old dusty copies of the Torah. They begin to unravel the scrolls and reread the stories that their heritage is supposed to know, that the people are supposed to, to understand. Um, they begin to focus on the land in which lies just across the Dead Sea, the land of Moab. Let me cut to another scene for just a second. Moab is a sworn enemy of the people of God, lie just east of the Dead Sea. In the Genesis account, Moab gets its beginnings as a product of incest. When Lot leaves Sodom and Gomorrah, the Genesis account has his daughters getting him drunk and sleeping with him, one on one night, one on the next night, and both of those girls bear children who become, their subsequent generations become major enemies of the people of God on down through through Genesis, Exodus, all the way through the Old Testament. When you get the numbers, you have the children of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt and trying to sojourn the wilderness, heading towards Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. They're trying to get to the promised land. And they get to the land of Moab to make their journey into the promised land, and the Moabites don't let them pass. And in fact, the Moabite king Balak hires a prophet named Balaam to stand on a hill and curse the people of God. And that gives us the famous story from the middle of Numbers where Balaam says, I tried to curse them, but I can't curse that which is blessed. And he three times goes to curse them and is not, not allowed to curse them. Um, and so when the cursing them doesn't work, Moab tries the alternate trick of Moabitess women convincing Israelite men to sleep with them and then turning them into idolatry. And that one works. And so Israel is infiltrated in many ways by the land of Moab through idolatry and through uh, these sort of sexual liaisons between the people of God and Moab. So this is the conflict. Ezra and Nehemiah walk back into a, what they're trying to rebuild as sort of a new Jerusalem with a new temple. And so they go pull those dusty scrolls of the Torah out and they have to sort of pick a rallying cry. Because what happens when you're bringing a people into a new place, you need something to unify everybody, to get everybody excited about. Nothing works better than creating a common enemy. We do this in politics all the time. Let's create an ideology by which all of us disagree with that ideology and then we put all of our enemies into that ideology so that we have a very simple argument. We don't like that. Vote for so-and-so, he's against that. So yeah, we do that a lot in our culture. And so that's a simple way to rally everybody around one idea, one thing. So you got this whole Torah to choose from if you're Ezra and Nehemiah. What are you going to pick to rally the people of God around? Well, they choose Deuteronomy 23.3. Let me start there. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even up to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. I told you that we're four generations removed from the fall of the temple and from Israel going into Babylonian captivity. 
And so here we are, a fifth generation coming back in. And now we need to reach deep and find an enemy we can all agree with. So Ezra and Nehemiah go to, the, to the, what we call the book of Deuteronomy, Moses' writings, the Torah. And they find an enemy, the Ammonites and the Moabites, up to 10 generations, they don't get to enter this place. Now we've got someone who is cut off, someone who doesn't belong. Nehemiah's little letter really goes to town on this idea. Nehemiah chapter 13. Verse 1, on that day, they read from the book of Moses. By the way, the book of Moses, we're going to, we call this, the, oftentimes we call it the Pentateuch because we're speaking sort of Greek, but Torah. Book of Moses is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy for purposes of scholarship. On that day, they read from the book of Moses. What do you think they read? Probably Deuteronomy 23. Here's how we know. In the hearing of the people, and it was found written that the Ammonite or the Moabite should never come into the assembly of God. So they're reading Deuteronomy 23. That's what they discover. Go down to verse 23. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Pause right there for a moment. Do you think that's going to be a problem? <laughs> Considering that the verse they chose to rally everybody around said no Ammonites or Moabites get to come in. Jews married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. So they don't speak the pure tongue. We've got ourselves a problem. So I contended with them. I cursed them. I struck some of them. I pulled out their hair. I made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for sons of yourself. So what's Nehemiah's solution? Curse them, smack them, pull their hair. Now, now, now just make sure you understand, Nehemiah is using scripture. Nehemiah is using Deuteronomy 23.3. We read it together. He quotes it. No Ammonites up to the 10th generation. Some of you guys have married them. I'm so mad at you. I smack you in the face. I yell at you. I curse you. Pull in the hair. I mean, it, it kind of gets progressively worse. Nehemiah. Now, it's funny because it ain't you getting your hair pulled, right? It's funny because I'm not getting smacked over it. But I want you to try to be there about 450 years before Christ. This is a religious revival. We have ourselves a revival of morality, a revival of righteousness. By the way, if these little letters, if these little lessons on Tuesday have taught you anything, be very careful with revivals of morality and revivals of church-led righteousness. A revival of the grace of God, <laughs> a revival of understanding the covenant of God and the loving Father, kind of revivals you can rally around. Revivals that pick who's wrong and who's right, watch out. Because they don't often end well. And this is what Nehemiah decides to do. So he, sort, he doesn't just double down. He sort of triples down, quadruples down. Goes on the attack against those. Um, how does his buddy Ezra handle it? Well, Ezra handles the other problem. What happens if you're already married? Like it's one thing to tell them Moabites are not allowed for 10 generations. I heard some of you don't even speak Hebrew anymore and you're acting Babylonian and you've hooked up with Moabite women, smack in the face, pull the hair, curse them out. But what happens if you're already married? Surely if you're already married, we just accept them. I mean, you love the woman, you got kids with her. Surely we just accept them in because that's probably the right thing to do. And then in Ezra 
chapter 10, verse 44, lists 117 men who had married Moabite women, and all these had married foreign women, and they sent them away with their children. And that's the last verse of the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are writing a letter to establish the fervor of the reconstruction of the temple of God. The same temple, in some ways, the same temple Jesus will eventually walk into. Herod's going to have a lot to change that temple over the course of several hundred years, but basically the same foundation stones are being laid in which Jesus will walk someday. And Ezra closes with a list of 117 men who have married Moabite women and closes it out by saying, they sent their wives and their children away. And I want you to imagine for a moment how painful this was for the wives and the children. These are real people. They are not hyperbolic because he lists them by name, 117 of them. Ezra chapter 10 reads like the Holocaust. It reads the name of the man and where he's from one verse after the next, so that future generations will not think this was just something they did. They will be able to trace who they did it to. So that the book ends with a list of those men who send their wives and their children away. And I want you to imagine that brokenness. The little book of Ruth is set in the time of the judges. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, right? In your chronology, for those that know their biblical Old Testament chronology. It's set in the time of Ruth. But based upon the wording inside the book, it isn't actually happening in the time of Ruth. The book of Ruth is composed right around 455 B.C. What other two books are composed right around 455? Ezra and Nehemiah are on a religious resurgence to remove those demonic Moabites from their presence. And somewhere into this ether comes this beautiful, gentle, pastoral, peaceful, grace-filled, dripping with mercy love letter about a girl from Moab who journeys back into Israel and finds herself marrying an Israelite man. And almost as a contrast to the ending of the book of Ezra, the book of Ruth ends with this line, and Jesse, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Whoever writes Ruth writes it on purpose to end their book absolutely the opposite of the way the book of Ezra ends their book to say what happens at the end of Ezra is you get rid of all of those filthy Moabites. They don't belong. But the author of Ruth is saying, I want to toss another theory into the mix. I want to see if maybe God is different than we've painted him. If perhaps God is a little less harsh on them than we're being on them. And just in case you don't know, the last name that comes out of this is the great King David, a descendant of Boaz, who marries Ruth, which means 10 generations of Moabites don't get to come into the house of the Lord. Then King David is disqualified from having ever been king in the first place. Can't prove it. 
don't know for sure that's what's happening. The book doesn't open by saying, hey, Ezra, hey, Nehemiah, listen up. <laughs> but seeing as they come from the same place and the same time, and you say, well, how can you know that? Well, because your Christian Old Testament is not the Hebrew Bible. One of the great mistakes that Christians make is saying things like, our Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible. No, it's not. Your Old Testament is the Christian Old Testament. It's been reconfigured. It's been reimagined. It's been re-edited. It's been redacted. It's been added to. It's been shifted around. It's been moved so it can fall in chronological order. It is not the Hebrew Bible. Let me show you a little bit of a contrast. The Hebrew Bible listed on the left, the Protestant Bible listed on the right. I didn't bother to list the Catholic Bible, which will include books not listed in our Protestant, so we'll just keep this for this at the, for the time being. The Hebrew Bible is often called the Tanakh. Tanakh being sort of an acronym of the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. The Torah, the Navim, the Ketuvim, T-N-K, Tanakh. And so when a Jew speaks of the Tanakh, they're speaking of the entirety of what we would call the Hebrew Bible or maybe the Protestant Bible. Books of Moses, Torah, we covered that a moment ago, Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers. I don't want to stay here forever. This is how I'm going to close this little introduction as we get us ready. But I want you to notice that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, the Samuel letters, the Kings letters, and then the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then the minor prophets, and then the writings, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles. Notice that in the Protestant Bible, because Ruth is set in the time of the judges, which it opens by telling you, the Protestant Bible took Ruth and moved it way up here behind judges because we figured that things need to be like they are in the Western world. Stories move left to right, right? Chronologically. Show what happens in order. And so it goes into Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then on down past all of this. By the way, notice that Chronicles, books one and two, are stuck way up in the Protestant Bible, but they are the final book of the Hebrew Bible. And that's because Chronicles is the retelling of the entire story. The whole thing is over with when you get to the end of 2 Chronicles. In the Protestant Bible, that doesn't make a lot of sense because for us, we write this stuff chronologically, so we stick it way up here. Here's my proposition under which, under which I lay the foundation for this entire series. Is it possible that if we hadn't moved the book of Ruth from the writings of prophets right down here in all of the Ezra and Nehemiah world, if we hadn't moved her up to Joshua Judges, we might have realized that she came near the end of the canon where Ezra and Nehemiah actually land instead of way up in the history, early history of Israel. And in doing so, maybe would have realized that there's more than meets the eye to the little book of Ruth, that Ruth is saying something, and it's not just a love story, but perhaps it's a protest piece. Perhaps it's protesting against this idea that Moabites don't have a place. Because Ezra thought that, Nehemiah thought that, but the author of Ruth could not have disagreed more. Because Ruth doesn't fit in the world of Ezra and Nehemiah. Because 117 people can't be wrong about sending their wives away. 
And then someone writes Ruth. Ruth has no violence. Ruth has no villain. The author forces us to think differently about the Moabites and it prefaces a Jesus to come who will force his people to think differently about Samaritans. And the Old Testament that makes you think differently about Moabites leads to a New Testament that makes you think differently about Samaritans ought to lead to a today that makes you think differently about everyone. And that is where we will kick off Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 next week. And it's not fair to go into the book of Ruth without all that. Because it's not just a love letter. There's a whole lot going on. All right. Let me say a little prayer over this. I want to prepare the hearts of those who are going to watch this series. And you know as well as I do that that happens sometimes a year, two years, three years down the road. People then just sort of plow from one video right into the next. And I, I want that to settle in their heart. If you're doing that somewhere down the road, I encourage you to pause before you move forward. Pray over that. See where the Holy Spirit helps you to land. Father, I thank you for what I believe is going to be an enlightening journey into this Old Testament book where we'll get to see pictures of the Jesus character. We get to see pictures of the us characters. And we get to see redemption at its finest. But maybe what we're getting to see is your answer to how we treat the other. And for those who watch this and those who are preparing their hearts for it, I pray that you will lead them, guide them, direct them. Let that seed go to work where it should in Jesus' name. Amen.